Let's go ahead and get started um, with the word of prayer this morning. Uh, Father, we are thankful, um, all joking aside, we're thankful um, for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for this day that you've given us, um, that is set apart, um, that is for our good, for our benefit, a day of rest and worship, um, a day when you promise by your Spirit especially to dwell with us as we gather as your people. And Father, this morning, even as we prepare for worship by considering, um, again, the, the work of John Calvin and his <clears throat> explanation of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, um, that you would dwell with us by your Spirit, that you would help us um, to ponder these mysteries, uh, especially the mystery of the sacrament and what it means for us as we follow Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to get started this morning. Um, today actually is our last... Um, Looks like my clicker is not working, Eric. I don't know if that needs to be turned on. There we go. Um, today is actually our sort of last um, discussion of John Calvin's Institutes. We have um, worked our way through systematically um, through the Institutes, talking about and summarizing and discussing um, what Calvin has to say um, in this great work about, a God, about God, about humanity, and about um, the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, today, we are continuing the discussion we began last week, um, focusing on the Lord's Supper. Um, Calvin has so much to say about the Lord's Supper, and it's so rich that I wanted to take um, two weeks so we could really wrestle with it and hear it um, clearly from him. Um, and so we're just going to jump right back in to where we left off last week. Um, uh, Calvin summarizes actually well about midway through his chapter, um, his point, and he says this, to summarize, our souls are fed by the flesh and blood of Christ in the same way that bread and wine keep and sustain physical life. And that actually, I mean, Calvin gives it as a summary. It is a very pithy and, and good summary of what he is attempting to convey in his understanding of the Lord's Supper. Um, that in the Lord's Supper, our souls are fed, really fed, um, not just encouraged, not um, inspired, um, they are fed by the flesh and blood of Christ, the real flesh and blood of Christ, in the same way that bread and wine keep and sustain physical life. And what Calvin is wanting to argue is that in the same way that food is necessary for the life of our bodies and physical life in this earth, our souls are absolutely dependent upon the flesh and blood of Jesus, upon his um, his self, his divine and human nature, um, united together um, in his one person. Um, we are dependent upon him uh, for the life of our souls. And so we must receive him in the Lord's Supper if we are to live. For the analogy of the sign applies only, Calvin says, if souls find their nourishment in Christ, which cannot happen unless Christ truly grows into one with us. The Lord's Supper is all about the union that we have with Jesus and that union deepening, growing more and more um, intimate and strong and, and uh, um, alive uh, for us. Um, and he refreshes us by the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. Um, Calvin wants to say this as strongly as possible, really, um, that there is a real feeding upon the body and blood of Jesus, which takes place in the Lord's Supper. This is essential for the life of our souls. It is one of God's primary appointed means by which we grow into one with Jesus Christ, the one to whom we're united. 
And how does this happen now? How does it happen? How, does, how can Calvin say these things and not also say um, with the Roman Catholic Church that, that somehow the elements become um, in, some, in some actual way, um, literal way, we might say, uh, the body and blood of Jesus. The bread actually, um, even though it still appears to be bread, is actually in its essence now the body of Jesus. The wine, though it appears to be wine, is now the blood of Jesus in some essential way. And if Calvin is not going to say that, then how can he say that in the Lord's Supper, we eat the body of Christ, we drink the blood of Christ? Um, Here's Calvin's answer. It's basically a miracle that is wrought by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Even though it seems unbelievable, Calvin says, that Christ's flesh separated from us by such a great distance, and of course there Calvin is referring to the reality that we know where Christ's flesh is. It's not a mystery, the scriptures tell us. The flesh of the person, Jesus Christ, his body, his blood, is right now in heaven. It's not on earth. You're not going to find it somewhere. You're not going to discover it. It is in the presence of God on our behalf. It is separated, so how can it be that, that Christ's flesh separated from us by such a great difference, a distance, penetrates to us so that it becomes our food. Well, here's how. Let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above all our senses, and how foolish it is to wish to measure His immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive, that the Spirit truly unites things separated in space. And this is important for Calvin, that this is not something that we are going to fully comprehend or understand or be able to parse out, but it is something that we by faith conceive. That by faith we know this to be true, um, not necessarily by the means of human logic or understanding. Now that sacred partaking of his flesh and blood by which Christ pours his life into us. I love the way Calvin just again and again just is just wanting to drive this point home. And he says it in such eloquent and wonderful ways. In the Lord's Supper, Christ pours his life into us. That's what happens each Sunday as you take the Lord's Supper, as you take the bread, as you take the wine. Christ himself is pouring his life into you so that it penetrates, as Calvin says, into your bones and marrow, so that his life actually sinks down into your soul, into your heart, into your inner being. He so testifies and seals this in the supper, not by presenting a vain and empty sign, but there manifesting the effectiveness of his spirit to fulfill what he promises. And truly he shows the reality there signified to all who sit at that spiritual banquet. Though it is received, of course, with benefit by believers alone, faith is a necessary condition for right partaking of the Lord's Supper, who accept such great generosity with true faith, and gratefulness of heart. Therefore, if the Lord represents the participation in his body through the breaking of bread, there ought to be no, not the least doubt, that he truly presents and shows his body. This is a a fundamental concern for Calvin, um, that we have to take the Lord Jesus seriously. If he said, you must eat my flesh in order to have life in me, if he said, this is my body, then we have to take that seriously. If Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the cup and the bread are actual participation in the body and blood of Christ, we have to take that seriously. We can't just wave that off. 
The godly ought by all means to keep this rule, says Calvin. Whenever they see symbols appointed by the Lord, to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. And of course, we could apply this in other areas. We could talk about baptism. We could talk about the preaching of God's word. Um, we could talk about many things under this heading. But what Calvin is saying here is that when, we, when the Lord connects himself to a symbol, we need to trust um, that he is doing what is being symbolized, that it is actually present in the symbol. For why should the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you of a true participation of it? But if it is true that a visible sign is given to us to seal the gift of a thing invisible, when we have received the symbol of the body, let us no less surely trust that the body itself is also given to us. We can trust God. In many ways, that is basically what Calvin is saying. We can trust God. We can trust that he means it when he says that he gives himself to us. Actually, really, not just in some intellectual way, but really gives himself. Um, that is the, the thing that Calvin is trying to say. Um, Calvin then goes on to say in this next chapter, um, now even though all these things have to do with faith, I think this is really important. He really here is interacting with what we might say, the memorialist view, the idea that in the supper only uh, the, the meaning of Christ's death is recalled to us and to our minds and as a way to increase and encourage our faith. Calvin wants to go far beyond that. He says, now even though all these things have to do with faith, right, we by faith receive the bread and consider it to be the body of our Lord. By faith we participate in the sacrament and the Spirit um, works in us. Still, I leave no place for the sophistry. That sophistry is the word that means kind of false wisdom. Um, false wisdom. That what I mean when I say Christ is received by faith is that he is received only by understanding and imagination. You see what Calvin is doing there? He's saying, lest you be confused when I say that Christ is received by faith in the sacrament, I am not saying by that, by that qualifier, faith, that he is therefore received only by understanding and imagination. For the promises offer him. The promises offer Christ. Christ doesn't say, you must eat my body, eat my flesh, in order to have your faith stirred up. No, he says, you must eat my flesh in order to have life in me. The promises offer him, not for us to halt in the appearance and bear knowledge alone, but to enjoy true participation with him or in him. True participation in him. And indeed, I do not see how anyone can trust that he has redemption and righteousness in the cross of Christ and life in his death unless he relies chiefly upon a true participation in Christ himself. For those benefits would not come to us unless Christ first made himself ours. This is, of course, a point Calvin has been arguing throughout his entire institutes, that we cannot be saved by mere knowledge we cannot be saved by a mere bare assent to realities uh, regarding God and who he is and who we are. In order for us to be delivered from death and from our sin and from the exile that we have in God in those things, we have to be made one with God. We have to be made one with God through the person of Jesus. We have to be brought into union with him. And thus the supper is a means of effecting 
and increasing and deepening that union. I say, therefore, that in the mystery of the supper, Christ is truly shown to us through the symbols of bread and wine, his very body and blood, in which he has fulfilled all obedience to obtain righteousness for us. Why? First, that we may grow into one body with him. Secondly, having been made partakers of his substance, that we may also feel his power in partaking of all his benefits. Partakers of his substance. Calvin is using that word intentionally, of course, because it is one that is fundamental in the development of Christian orthodoxy, right? And and the Nicene Creed, when we recite that each week, we recite that the, the Son is of the same substance as the Father. That is what their union is like. They are two distinct persons, and yet they are of the one substance, the same substance. And in the same way, Calvin says, in the supper, we are made partakers of the substance of Christ, which is the same one substance that he shares with the Father. We're brought into that kind of union with Christ, the union that he shares with the Father. It's a remarkable thing that he's saying there. So what is going on with the presence of Christ's body? Calvin says, we must not dream of such a presence of Christ in the sacrament as the craftsmen of the Roman court have fashioned, as if the body of Christ by a local presence were put there to be touched by the hands, to be chewed by the teeth, and to be swallowed by the mouth. Why? Why can we not say this? For Calvin, this is the fundamental reason. Because we do not doubt that Christ's body is limited by the general characteristics common to all human bodies. Does that make sense? We have to say, according to Calvin, that when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he received a real human body that shares the same characteristics that are common to all human bodies. What do human bodies do? If I'm right here, where can I not be? Anywhere else, right? I can't be over there. I can't be in my house sleeping um, just to choose a random place. Um, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, be in the car. I can't, like wherever, right? I have to be here, right here. That is a general characteristic that is common to all human bodies. We all know it. We all experience the tension of that every day of our lives, right? We say it. I can only be in one place at one time, right? We say that as a, as a sort of explanation for why we can't do all the things that we want to do. One place, one time. That is true for the body of Jesus. If it is not true, we've got some big problems, right? Big problems. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul takes the resurrection of the body of Jesus as a fundamental of the Christian faith. If his resurrection was not bodily, as we understand bodies, then we are in trouble. We do not doubt that Christ's body is limited by the general characteristics common to all human bodies, and therefore we cannot literally, physically eat his flesh, because that would require his body to be present in one one place at one time. There are other problems with that, but that is, for Calvin, one of the basic problems, is that is it, it, it mars, it, 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 um, it does great air damage to what we believe regarding the resurrection of Jesus and our common hope of being resurrected in the same way that he was. 
So since his body is limited by the general characteristics common to all human bodies, it is contained in heaven, where it was once for all received, until Christ returns in judgment. And so we deem it, Calvin says, utterly unlawful to draw it back under these corruptible elements or imagine it to be present everywhere. And there Calvin is, is in that last phrase, is, is going against um, the, the, Roman, I'm sorry, the Lutheran view, um, which is that Christ, by his, according to his human nature, is ubiquitous, that he is everywhere at all times, according to not only his divine nature, but also his human nature. And Calvin thinks this is an error, too. It's not as great an error as transubstantiation, but it is also an error um, that, that um, he would disagree with. That Christ's human nature is a real human nature, and human natures can only be present in one place at one time. Um, he cannot be, by his humanity, present in all places. So how is Jesus present with us in his humanity? By his spirit, right? His spirit is the one who overcomes the distance. And there's no need of this, that is Christ's ubiquitous human presence, for us to enjoy participation in it, since the Lord bestows this benefit upon us through his spirit, through his spirit. This is why Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit, the doctor of the spirit. Again and again, he comes back to the work of the spirit. The spirit is the one that unites us with the real Christ, the Christ that is right now hidden from us in heaven. We are really brought into union with him by the power of of the Spirit. The bond of this connection is therefore the Spirit of Christ with whom we are joined in unity. The Spirit is like a channel through which all that Christ himself is and has is conveyed to us. All that Christ is and has. All that he is, all that he possesses in terms of the favor of the Father, the presence before his face, his eternal life, his righteousness, all these things is conveyed to us through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. On this account, Scripture, in speaking of our participation with Christ, relates its whole power to the Spirit. When you think of the Spirit, this is what the Spirit does. He points to the person of Jesus, He illuminates His person and work and character, and even more than that, He unites us to Him. This is the fundamental work of the Holy Spirit, according to the New Testament. It's not about ecstatic visions or works or whatever. It is about this fundamental transformative miracle, our union with the person of Christ. That is what the Spirit does, fundamentally. One passage will suffice for many, Calvin says, for Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans, look at this verse a few days ago in his Bible study, states that Christ dwells in us only through His Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9. Our mortal bodies receive life because they are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. Yet he does not take away that communion of his flesh and blood which we are now discussing, but teaches that the Spirit alone causes us to possess Christ completely, completely, and have him dwelling in us. Uh, this presence is known when we lift our minds up to heaven. This is why um, when in our liturgy of, of the Lord's Supper, as is common in Reformed churches, um, before we go into the Lord's Supper, I say, lift up your hearts. And you respond, we lift them up to the Lord. Because we believe that in the Supper, Christ is not coming down to us in some physical way, but rather by the power of the Spirit, we are ascending to Him. We are in the Spirit going to where Jesus is in heaven itself. 
We are being united to Him there. If we are lifted up to heaven with our eyes and minds to seek Christ there in the glory of His kingdom as the symbols invite us to Him in His wholeness, and it's important to remember that, that we believe in the Lord's Supper, that we're, we are feeding on the Christ who was crucified, but not in His crucifixion now. Right? We feed on Him in His resurrection. And his, He bears the scars of His crucifixion. He is the crucified one. But we feed on Him as He is now in His glory and everlasting life and power and all that He has received from the Father, all authority. All, we feed in Him as He is at this moment in heaven. And so under the symbol of bread, we may sh- shall be fed by His body. Under the symbol of wine, we shall separately drink His blood and we will enjoy Him at last in His wholeness. It is a foretaste of the enjoyment we will receive on the last day when He truly comes and shares Himself with us. For though He has taken His flesh away from us, and in the body has ascended to heaven, yet He sits on the right hand of the Father. He reigns in the Father's power and majesty and glory. This kingdom of heaven, there is, is not bounded by location and space, nor circumscribed by any limits. This Christ is not prevented in exerting His power wherever He pleases, in heaven and on earth. He shows His presence and power and strength, is always among His people and breathes His life upon them, and lives in them, and sustains them, strengthening, quickening, keeping them unharmed, as if He were present in the body. Though He is absent, it is as if He were present. He feeds His people with His own body, the communion which He bestows upon them by the power of His Spirit. He does all these things. He will never leave you or forsake you. He always watches over you. He is your Good Shepherd. He goes with you into the dark valley. He gives Himself to you in His Word and Sacrament, but He does so by the power of His Spirit. One of the wonderful things about Calvin is that he really is a radically Trinitarian theologian. Every person of the Trinity is fundamentally involved in the work of salvation. The Holy Spirit is not just some, you know, thrown in there as a cherry on top of everything else, the important stuff. The the Holy Spirit is fundamental. None of it makes any sense without the work of the Spirit. I think I love that about Calvin, the way that he talks about the, the central nature of the work, the present work of the Holy Spirit. And this is just a summary. I just wanted to give you this chapter title. Christ is not brought down to us. We are lifted up to him in the Lord's Supper. That's a great kind of summary of what Calvin believes and what our church believes um, happens in the Supper. Christ is not brought down to us. We are lifted up to Him. We might insert in parenthesis by the Spirit. Now, Calvin says, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, how it is that we feed upon the body and blood of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, how we really receive Him and His wholeness, all that He is, all that He has, If anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty, too lofty, it's too high, for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. Calvin of there, I think, is actually thinking and referencing one of, I can't remember the psalm off the top of my head, 120, 131, 131, 
um, that, that, that I occupy myself with things um, that, are, that are lowly, not things that are too high for me, right? The psalmist says that. And that's what Calvin, I think, is referring to here, that he is not ashamed that this is a secret that is too lofty for him to fully understand or comprehend or even for his words to explain. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. What a wonderful statement. We could say this about so much, right? About the Trinity, about the Incarnation, about grace, about election. And certainly we can say it about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't so much understand them, we experience them. They are mysterious. We're never going to fully grasp all the ins and outs. But we can experience it. We can experience the union that we have with Jesus in the Lord's Supper as he gives himself to us, even if we can't fully understand how it all works. Therefore, Calvin says, I here embrace without controversy the truth of God in which I may safely rest. Here's Calvin just having faith like a child, which is, of course, the most profound faith of all. He declares his flesh the food of my soul. That is Jesus. He declares his blood its drink. I offer my soul to him to be fed with such food. In his sacred supper he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I do not doubt that he himself, the Lord Jesus himself, truly presents them and that I receive them. At the end of the day, there's kind of a simplicity for Calvin. I believe this because it's what Jesus said. I take him at his word. I trust that he meant it when he said it. Um, Calvin goes on and talks about, in the same way we are to judge concerning participation, which they do not recognize, that is the Roman church, unless they swallow Christ's flesh under the bread. Yet a serious wrong is done to the spirit in this view, this view of transubstantiation unless we believe that it is through his incomprehensible power that we come to partake of the flesh and blood of Christ. The manner is spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean that it's not real. Spiritual means that it is affected by the Spirit. For us, the manner is spiritual because the secret power of the Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ. <coughs> That's a great summary statement about the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the bond of our union with with Christ. That's what the Spirit does. Everything else falls under that heading in some way. The Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ. Anyone who desires our salvation to be helped by this sacrament will find nothing more fitting that the believers led to the well may draw life from the Son of God. That was what you were doing every Sunday. When you received the bread and the wine, you were drawing life from the only well that is or ever will be, the Son of God. This is why you need it. This is why you need to be in worship. Because without it, you will die. You will, I promise you. You must receive the life that is given to you. You must come to the well, the only well that exists, that gives you true life. You must receive the body and blood of the Son of God. 
but its dignity is wonderfully enough commended when we hold that it is a help whereby we may be engrafted into Christ's body or engrafted may grow more and more together with him. Calvin has this wonderful understanding. He just mentions it again and again, that union with Christ is not some sort of static reality. It is something we grow into. It is like marriage. It is like friendship. It is like any relationship you have with any other human being. It is something that deepens over time. And one of the main ways that it deepens for us, that we grow more together with Him, is through His giving of Himself in the Supper. Until He perfectly joins us with Him in the heavenly life. There's a trajectory here. There's an eschatology built into our receiving the Supper each week. We're going more and more towards the eschaton, more and more towards the culmination of all things. So Calvin has talked a lot about the, the, uh, the vertical, we might say, um, reality of the Lord's Supper, what it means. But he also wants us to think about uh, the way in which the Lord's Supper impacts our horizontal relationships with other believers, especially those in the congregation um, that we are, are partaking with. The Lord's Supper, Calvin says, implies mutual love. And if you look at this, you look at some of the liturgies Calvin wrote and used, this was a really big deal to him that the Lord's Supper actually has an ethical um, uh, uh, reality and implication and, and application for us. It is not only about our relationship with Christ and the Father by the power of the Spirit. It is also about our relationship with our neighbor who is sitting next to us in the pew or in front of us or behind us. It should, it should change how we relate to them as we partake of the body and blood of Jesus each week together. The Lord also intended the supper to be a kind of exhortation for us, which can be more forcefully than any other means, quicken and inspire us both to purity and holiness of life and to love, peace, and concord. More than any other means, Calvin says. That's pretty interesting to think about. For the Lord so communicates his body to us that he is made completely one with us and we with him. Now, since Jesus has only one body of which he makes us all partakers, it is necessary that all of us also be made one body by such participation. We don't talk about this um, as much as we probably should sometimes, that in the supper, we're not only becoming one with Jesus, we're becoming one with one another. With all of those who are professing, who are baptized, who are, who are brought into union with Christ, who are communing together, um, this is a union that is taking place, um, not only vertically, but also horizontally. We shall benefit very much from the sacrament if this thought is impressed and engraved upon our minds, that none of the brethren can be injured, despised, rejected, abused, or any way offended by us without at the same time injuring, despising, and abusing Christ by the wrongs we do. We cannot disagree with our brethren without at the same time disagreeing with Christ. We cannot love Christ without loving him and the brethren. We ought to take the same care of our brethren's bodies as we take of our own, for they are members of our body. And as no part of our body is touched by any feeling of pain which is not spread among all the rest, so we ought not to allow a brother to be affected by any evil without being touched by compassion for him. 
It's a fascinating thing that Calvin talks about here. This reality of the supper is meant to shape us into people who actually love our neighbor, who see our neighbor's problem as our problem. The Lord's Supper is meant to break down the walls of isolation that so easily exist. It's to keep us from being individualists in our relationship with God, to realize our common bond that we share. Because if if we're being made one body with Christ, we're all part of the same body. Accordingly, Augustine, with good reason, frequently calls this sacrament the bond of love. For what sharper goad could there be to arouse mutual love among us than when Christ, giving himself to us, not only invites us by his own example to pledge and give ourselves to one another, but inasmuch as he makes himself common to all, also makes all of us one in himself. Something worth thinking about, considering. Now, as you begin to ponder and comprehend the wonders of this mystery, this meal, this sacred supper that is offered to you each week, um, I think a natural response would be, well, who am I to receive this? Who am I to, to have this bountiful feast given to me each week? And so, Calvin says, Surely the devil could find no speedier means of destroying men than by so maddening them that they could not taste and savor this food with which their most gracious Heavenly Father had willed to feed them. What is the devil going to do if this is the place, the Lord's Supper is the place where Christ is offered to you week by week? What's he going to do? He's going to try to keep you from it, right? He's going to raise doubts in your mind about whether you should do it, whether you belong, whether you're worthy, whether you have what it takes, whether your life is good enough. He's going to do whatever he can to keep you from the table of Jesus Christ if that is the place where Christ is offered to you. He does not want you to have it. In order then, therefore, not to rush headlong to such ruin, the ruin of being kept from the table of our Lord. And and friends, I just, I just, I know this, I know this, that this is, this is a, I know that it happens even in our church today. I know that some of you at times excommunicate yourself from the table because you do not think you are worthy of it. You need to know, like, this is not just some sort of past thing that happened back. This, this is something we, some of us struggle with here today, even in our congregation. I'm just going to let it pass this week, right? Um, because, well, I had that fight. Um, you know, there's an issue with my marriage that isn't fully resolved. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I'm 100% confident about my salvation this week. Um, whatever, fill in the blank, right? And what Calvin is going to say, what I'm going to say is don't do that. Don't do that. Do not do that. The only time you should not take of the Lord's Supper, I just want to say this clear as I can as your pastor, If you have been admitted to the table here, the only time you do not take is if you have been suspended from the table or excommunicated by church discipline, by your elders, by your session. And if that is the case, you will know it, right? It will not be confusing. If that is not the case, guess what you should do every single week? You should take the Lord's Supper. No exceptions. Literally no exceptions. You should take it. 
If there's such sin in your life that you, you know, you're living in unrepentant sin, then yes, you, you need to confess that sin. You need to come and talk about it. But, but not taking the supper of the Lord because you don't think that, that that's something that, that you should participate in, that, that is not what it means to be submissive to your elders. That is not what it means um, to, be, to be a part of the church in such a way. That the sacrament is given to you for your life. As your pastor, I want you to feed on Christ as he's offered to you. Do not rush headlong into ruin. Calvin tells us why. He says we should not do this because we should remember that this sacred feast is medicine. Who needs medicine? The sick. Right? Jesus said something about that. Right? I did not come to, to, to make the, the, those who are already healthy well, but I came to, to heal those who, who need a physician. Right? The sacred feast is medicine for the sick, solace for sinners. Sinners. That's who it's for. If you're a sinner, you can come. It's alms for the poor. It would bring no benefit to the healthy, to the righteous, to the rich, if such could be found. Of course, Calvin doesn't think there are such people. But if there were, it would not benefit you. For since in Christ is given in it, in the meal, in the supper, Christ is given to us as food, we understand that without him we would pine away, starve, and faint as famine destroys the vigor of the body. Then since he is given un us unto life, we understand that without him in us we would plainly be dead. This is why you must come. You must come to him so that he can give you life. You must come to Him so that you can more and more repent of your sin. That's why you come, friends. You don't not come because you're a sinner or because you, have, you haven't fully dealt with all the sin in your life. That's why you come. So that you can do those things more and more. Please, just hear me as clear as I can say. Do not excommunicate yourself, even for a week from the table of the Lord. Don't do it. Therefore, this is the worthiness. This is the worthiness, Calvin says. This is what it means to be worthy. The best and only kind we can bring to God to offer our vileness and, so to speak, our unworthiness in Him, to Him, so that His mercy may make us worthy of Him. Our worthiness is our unworthiness if we offer it to Christ. To despair in ourselves so that we may be comforted in Him to abase ourselves so we may be lifted up by him, to accuse ourselves so we may be justified in him, moreover to aspire to that unity which he commends us to in his supper, and as he makes all of us one in himself, to desire one soul, one heart, one tongue for all. If we have weighed and considered these things well, these thoughts, though they may stagger us, will never lay us low. How could we, needy and bare of all good, befouled with sins, half dead, eat the Lord's body unworthy? I'm sorry, yeah, I need to get this right. How could we, needy and bare of all good, befouled with sins, if we're actual sinners, half dead, how could we eat the Lord's body worthily? How could we do that if worth meant some kind of spiritual maturity or righteousness or innocence before God? We could never eat the Lord's Supper worthily if that's what worthiness meant. Rather, we shall think that we, as being poor, 
come to a kindly giver, as sick to a physician, as sinners to the author of righteousness, finally as dead. If you are dead, you may come. As dead to him who gives us life. The worthiness which is commanded by God consists chiefly in faith, which reposes all things in Christ but nothing in ourselves. Secondly, in love, and that very love, which though imperfect is enough to offer to God, it's not perfect love, it's imperfect, but it is enough to offer to God that he may increase it to something better. And as much as it cannot be offered in completeness, you will never be perfectly worthy if you look to yourself. You will never take, not once. But if you get this, if you grasp this, that your worthiness is not found in yourself, but in Christ, you will come every single time it is offered to you. Because you know you need it. The proper celebration of the supper. This is interesting. Calvin here gets in a little bit of the nitty-gritty how we should do it. But as for the outward ceremony of the action, whether or not the believers take it in their hands, or divide it among themselves, or severally eat, what has been given to each, whether they hand the cup back to the deacon or give it to the next person, whether the bread is leavened or unleavened, the wine red or white, even whether the wine is red or white, my goodness. It makes no difference, Calvin says. It doesn't matter. These things are indifferent and left at the church's discretion. That's some pastoral wisdom right there, I think. And I should say that we do the Lord's Supper the way we do it because I think it's a good way to do it. It's faithful to the scriptures. It's consistent with what we believe, but it's not the only way to faithfully do the Lord's Supper. Um, these things are in the, the area of wisdom rather than um, rule. And I think it's important. I agree with Calvin on that. The supper is administered most becomingly if it were set before the church very often and at least once a week. What's interesting about that phrase? At least once a week. Something we might think about. I think it's interesting. Of course, you should remember that Calvin preached five days a week in addition to the Lord's Day. Um, so he believed similar things about uh, the preaching of God's Word. Um, so, but, but it is interesting that he, that he uh, thinks the supper should be set before us very often at least once a week. Of course, famously, he never got this in Geneva. I believe it was never more frequently than quarterly there. Um, to Calvin's um, chagrin and sorrow. First, then, it should begin with public prayers. After this, a sermon should be given. Then, when bread and wine have been placed on the table, the minister should repeat the words of institution and the supper. Then he should recite the promises which were left to us in it. At the same time, he should excommunicate all who were barred from it by the Lord's prohibition. In other words, who has been told they cannot come, right? Afterward, he should pray that the Lord, with the kindness wherewith he has bestowed the sacred food upon us, also teach and form us to receive it with faith and thankfulness of heart. And inasmuch as we are not so of ourselves, by his mercy, make us worthy of such a feast. Here, either psalms should be songs should be sung or something be read, and in becoming order, the believers should partake of the most holy banquet the ministers breaking the bread and giving the cup. When the supper is finished, there should be an exhortation to sincere faith and confession of faith, the love and behavior worthy of Christians. And at last, thanks should be given and praises sung to God. When these things are ended, the church should be dismissed in peace. What does that sound like? 
Is it familiar to you? It's what we do every week, right? It's what we do. Yeah. The benediction, the blessing, word and sacrament, all these things. What we've said so far of the sacrament abundantly shows that it was not ordained to be received once a year. That's what the Roman church was doing, of course, at the time. And even then, the people weren't fully receiving. And that, too, perfunctorily is now the usual custom. Rather, it was ordained to be frequently used among all Christians in order that they might frequently return in memory to Christ's passion by such remembrance to sustain and strengthen their faith and urge themselves to sing thanksgiving to God and proclaim his goodness by it to nourish mutual love and among themselves give witness to this love and to discern its body in the unity of Christ. This is something just to remember as you think about the Reformation. The Reformation was about the, the Protestant, uh, the, the Reformation of the Western Church in regards to Scripture, in regards to um, uh, the understanding of justification by faith, um, a number of things, of course. But among other things, it was a reform regarding the sacraments. And especially it was a restoration of the Lord's Supper to the people of God. It was one of the most profound changes that a lay person would have experienced if they had started going to church in Geneva, let's just say. Or maybe not Geneva. A, a church where this happens more frequently, at least. And in a Protestant church, um, as opposed to a Roman Catholic church. Roman Catholic church, once a year, you see the priest doing it on your behalf. The Protestant church, at least those that really bought into the vision that Calvin was saying, as many of them did, Weekly, every week, it was, a, it was a massive difference to go from watching someone else take the Lord's Supper once a year to having it every week offered to you. It was a substantial, amazing difference. Um, Paul and then and Calvin roots this in what Luke teaches in Acts, in Acts 2, about um, the, the connection between word, fellowship, um, uh, the breaking of bread, and prayer, and prayer. All right, any questions? or comments as we wrap up today? Yes, ma'am. Carrie. Mm -hmm. They're they're watching the, essentially watching the priest perform Mass on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's to- totally disconnected from your your personal experience. Yeah. Good. Yeah, Ben. Right. Yeah, it's a very practical question. So Ben's asking, is part of the reason perhaps people don't take sometimes because of the way that the supper is presented? And yes, I agree. I mean, I I do. And that's part of why I don't, um, and on purpose, don't create some huge barrier for us to, I don't don't create any barrier other than what I think is there in Scripture, which is um, baptism and faith in Jesus Christ. And 
I think if, if that's true for you, you should come. And that's why I present the supper the way I do here. Um, and yes, I do, I do, you know, humbly, but, but also, but also, I mean, for me, it's an important issue. I do think, I wish pastors wouldn't do that. I wish they wouldn't, because I don't think that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is primarily about. Um, I think 1 Corinthians 11 is primarily about the corporate uh, participation of the body and the way the Lord's Supper is being um, celebrated there, not an individual uh, worthiness. Um, and I and I believe what Calvin says. I think it's so important to our spiritual lives that I don't want anyone who um, should be there to be prevented from it. And if, if I am, as a pastor, creating doubt in people's minds about whether they should partake of the supper, I think I'm, I think I'm, um, I think that's malpractice on my part. So, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sure. Fair enough. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Uh, all right, I see a lot of hands. Um, I saw Mike with a hand up. Did you? Okay. All right, we'll go to Jeremy, and then Kyoko, and then Eric. Yes, Jeremy. Yeah, and I have no problem taking sin seriously. Um, I but I want to take Jesus seriously too, um, even more seriously, actually. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's great. All right, real quick, Kyoko.
Yes. Not, yeah, and I understand. We should talk more about that if you're curious. I, I, what I would say is that that cha whole chapter is dealing not so much with uh, whether or not an individual should participate in the Lord's Supper based on their deportment that week or their quality of their faith um, or their maturity, but rather um, it's talking about the way in which the, the corporate body in Corinth is partaking of the supper and the divisions that are manifesting themselves in the partaking of the supper. Um, so we can talk more about that, but that I would, I would say that's more about corporate, the corporate um, body rather than the individual worthiness. All right, Eric, I'm going to have to talk to you after this. I'm sorry, we just need to wrap up. All right, let's, um, unless you can make it real quick. Can you make it real quick? Yeah. If you've got serious sin in your life, I'd like for you to, to, to confess it to the Lord, um, to be you know, assured of your forgiveness, to take the supper, and then if you feel the need, come tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Let's dive in. You know, let's, let's work towards sanctification and full repentance and all those things. All right, let's, um, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the supper. We thank you for this meal that is given to us for our life. We thank you for how truly... Um, your Son is offered to us in it by the power of your Spirit. And Father, this morning, help us, to, help us to love this sacrament, help us to, to long for it, help us to see it even as the, the place that you've given us to look for our life, our life in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.